Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ, 102.1 FM, Community Radio. My name is Andy and it is great to be with you again. I will be here for the next uh, hour until one o'clock and today we will be talking a bit about uh, post-COVID recovery, what it could look like. maybe some of the more negative things it could look like. Over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to do a bit of a theme of this, and it's inspired a bit by um, a book by Naomi Klein called The Shock Doctrine. It came out probably uh, 10 to 15 years ago, I suppose. Um, uh, and it has this thesis about disaster capitalism, about the way that real or perceived crises are used to push through reforms that maybe otherwise wouldn't be able to push through. And she uses a number of historical examples to talk about that. And of course, we are living in a time now of crisis, of you know a, a pandemic, a health crisis, uh, economic crisis come from it. Of course, there's ongoing issues with climate change and we saw that. If you remember the last crisis at the beginning of the year, it was bushfires. And so something to be aware of, the way that this can be used, um, I guess, for better, like things are in flux, change is often good, we can make things better, but it can often be bad and Obviously, there are powerful people who want to push change in their own interests. And so uh, we're going to hear a little bit from Naomi Klein about the ideas of the shock doctrine and disaster capitalism. And then today we're going to talk about this context in the Australia, the Australian context about the environment. And so I spoke with Emma Aisbet, who's an academic from ANU, who has studied uh, the way corporate uh, interests uh, are support are supported in times of crisis. The way that uh, regulations and things are cut when there is a downturn. Um, and then I also spoke to Rachel Wormsley. She's from the Environmental Defenders Office. She's a lawyer, and we talked about some of the ways that currently our environment is threatened by the kind of rhetoric around uh, the COVID crisis and the need for economic recovery from it. So it's going to be a packed show. It is, of course, the 1st of May today, International Workers' Day. Um There's no May Day parade this year, sadly. It is a part of Brisbane tradition normally, but I I will play some 
good union songs. I did get a request from Bill, who does the the Workers' Power show on Four Triple Z. Um, he requested <laughs> on Tuesdays. He requested so that I play some union songs, and so I'll. I'll put some out there as well to celebrate uh, so many of the gains that have been won over the years by workers sticking together and looking out for each other's interests, uh, standing up to those powerful interests. And that may be a way when we talk about how can we resist uh, changes that aren't in our interests coming out of this COVID crisis. Of course, unions is something to keep in mind of a way that's been done historically. So, that's what's coming up over the next hour. Stick around. Um, we might start off by hearing a bit from Canadian author Naomi Klein about her book, The Shock Doctrine, and the idea of disaster capitalism. I got really interested in the idea of shock and its use as a political tool when I was in Iraq uh, um, covering the occupation because there was this almost uh, triple storm uh, of, of shock going on in that country. There was the first shock, which was the shock and awe invasion, which was followed immediately after uh, by economic shock therapy, more radical than had been attempted even in the former Soviet Union, just a complete overhaul of the economy overnight. That's at least what was attempted. And then there was this third shock, which came into play after people started resisting the occupation and those other two shocks. And that was the shock of torture. And I, and, and I became interested in why it was that the architects of the invasion and occupation of Iraq had chosen this as their metaphor. Um, and what, what was it about the idea of shock that was so appealing to the, uh, to, to the people who wanted to remake Iraq? Uh, and I started to actually go back, try to go back to the source of the, the metaphor of, of, of shock therapy. So I started reading about its use in psychiatric contexts and also its use in torture. And that um, led me to a really close reading of the declassified CIA interrogation manuals that were first published in 1963 um, and in, um, in the 80s, reprinted and have since been declassified. And looking at how the CIA talks about the importance of putting prisoners into a state of shock, because when they're in a state of shock, they're not able to protect their interests. They become childlike and regressed. The, the interrogation manuals are really obsessed with this idea of regression. So I started to think about how that had been applied on a mass scale. The, the exploitation of crisis and shock has very consciously been used by radical free marketeers. And you know, I, I start the book quoting Milton Friedman, where it, something he wrote um, in, the, in 1982, only a crisis, real or perceived, produces real change. And he was admitting that his ideas, his, his vision of a radical privatized world couldn't be imposed in the absence of a crisis. He was referring to economic crises and economic crises have played that role of sort of softening the ground for the imposition of shock therapy. The Asian economic crisis was a classic example. The so-called tequila crisis in Mexico was another one that unleashed a wave of privatizations in Mexico. Um, but as people become more resistant and more aware of these strategies and you see these mass mobilizations against the institutions that 
exploited shock like the International Monetary Fund, then what starts to happen is the shocks need to get bigger in order for the disorientation to be greater. And that's where you have what I, what I call disaster capitalism. What the Bush administration did after September 11th, when the, the war on terror was declared, is they essentially launched a new economy. Because the parameters of this economy were, were extraordinarily wide. This is an endless war, we were told, that, that the enemy could not be reasoned with, could not, there could be no diplomacy, there could be no discussion, there could only be attack, and that it would not end until evil was defeated everywhere. Right? So if you think of it as a business plan, it could hardly be more profitable, because basically what you're saying is you've got this new market, it's never going to end, and we have unlimited funds to finance this, this new market. So, it, so unlike a one-off war, what they were building was a permanent new part of the economy, that the secure, a privatized security state. One other thing Milton Friedman said is that um, when the, after the crisis hits, the, the kind of change will depend on the ideas that are lying around. And that's really what the University of Chicago Economics Department was was producing all of those years were ideas that would be lying around when the next crisis hit, being prepared for that crisis. Uh, and, 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 and so it's, it's not a question of, uh, of, we don't need some vast conspiracy to say, oh, th that, that these crises are being deliberately planned and created so that they can be exploited. Now certainly there are some cases of deliberate shocks that were then exploited. Like I, I, this, the book starts with the coup in Chile, which was obviously a planned attack that put a country into shock and then, then, then was exploited for the sort of first classic case of economic shock therapy. The war in Iraq was of course planned as well and, and planned to be as shocking as possible, called shock and awe so that it could be exploited. But I think in most cases, it's not about planning the original shock. It's about being in an acute state of intellectual disaster preparedness. So that when the crisis hits, you're the ones who are ready with the ideas that are lying around. And so that's what, that's what happened when the levees broke, is that the Heritage Foundation was ready with their 32 free market solutions to, for Hurricane Katrina. And the first one was roll back labor standards. The next one was school vouchers instead of public school funding and on and on. So they were ready to go. And it's easy to be ready when you have the same ideas, no matter what the crisis is. Even though the material in the book is, is, is depressing, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrifying to read about all these moments where people were taken advantage of when they couldn't defend themselves. Um, and, and just the way in which torture um, and other forms of extreme violence have been used to impose this ideology. I don't find it completely depressing, and I'll tell you why. Before I did this research, I accepted, like most people, a large part of the narrative that the, the, the triumph of the free market uh, around the world in the 80s and 90s was a largely peaceful process. Uh, and that in fact, there, you know, even though we, we, you know, we progressives don't admit that there is no alternative, we lost faith in our alternatives and we accepted this narrative that there was a great battle of ideas and that we lost that battle, that we lost that battle. And when we go, when we look back, and this is what I do in the book, is I look at key chapters where this free market ideology has had its leaps forward, like the coup in Chile, 
um, than the, the the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the break apart of the breaking apart of the Soviet Union, um, Poland in 1989, Tiananmen Square in 1989, and looking at these key junctures where you had these big leaps forward for Milton Friedman's ideology, and what what you see at these moments is that it actually never was chosen, and the fact. That, that we can we can look and say, okay, well, what did Polish voters vote for in 1989? They voted for a party that was promising not to privatize their state companies, but to turn them into workers' co-ops. And what did South Africans vote for in 1994? They voted for a party that was promising to take the, the rich resources of that country that was in the hands of a tiny elite and redistribute them. Uh, what, what did Russians want? in 1993, most of them believe that privatization should also be done through worker ownership. Uh, and these ideas were blasted out of the way through various forms of shock and, and, and violence. But it wasn't that we didn't have the ideas, and it wasn't that we ever consented, it, it wasn't that we were ever convinced of the rightness, we just succumbed at various points. Um, and I actually think that's quite, it's quite empowering to realize that we didn't lose this battle of ideas because I think that a lot of what, what weakens us on the left is, is this notion that is repeated again and again that our ideas have tried and failed, that they're discredited. And that, I think, keeps us from having the strength of our conviction uh, in key moments. So that's part of the reason why I wrote the book to say it was actually, it wasn't a battle of ideas, it was a real battle. It was a real war with real casualties. So we came up against brutal forces and we lost, uh, but we didn't lose the argument.
A classic Mayday track for you there. That is Which Side Are You On? That version done by the Glitterats, Melbourne folk punks. Um, you are on the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ. It's quarter past 12. Before Which Side Are You On? We had Naomi Klein talking about some of the ideas from her book, The Shock Doctrine. Uh, about disaster capitalism and about the way that there's been a intentional push by uh, people who hold a, a radical right-wing economic view, the so-called Chicago School of neoliberal economists like Milton Friedman, how they intentionally used crises to push through quite radical changes to the way that we do economics and... Um, and she used a, a few historical examples, and I think it's certainly something worth noting now as we live in, in a time of multiple crises and there will be a push for how to best recover, especially from the economic impacts of COVID-19. And so I think this is uh, an idea definitely worth remembering in our time. And so we're going to speak to a couple of people about how this affects uh, Australia's environment policy at the moment. And over the, and next week, I'm hoping to talk to a couple of people about other issues because I think there's multiple ways that we can see how this will affect um, our lives, our economic systems, our relations. We have seen over in recent times as the news has been very focused on COVID. We've seen, as well as environmental reforms pushed through without, and it should be said, without a parliament in place to debate things at the moment. We've even lost that kind of mechanism of democracy. But as well as environmental changes, we've seen concerns about uh, people's privacy with things like the COVID tracing app. We've seen concerns about workplace issues. I know this morning on the Pineapple Rebellion, um, Alexis was interviewing people from the Queensland Council of Unions who were talking about uh, changes to the enterprise bargaining agreement, sort of uh, a taking away of workers' rights in that. Um, and we've seen things like talk about as a need, as part of the economic stimulus, a need to expand spending on weapons manufacturing. And um, was in the news yesterday, a big push to put more money into weapons manufacturing as a, a way of boosting our economy at what cost, you might say, the same as with our environment. What is it worth if our economy recovers, if our we live in a more militarised, more uh, carbon-intensive, worse life-sustaining environment? And so... Next week, we'll talk a bit more about some of those issues, but today we'll be talking about the environment in particular. And I did speak earlier this morning with Emma Aisbert, who is an academic from Australian National University, about some of how this may affect our environment and also about how some of that kind of corporate um, government power works. Could you start by introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Emma Aisbert and I am a research fellow at the School of Regulation and Global Governance at the Australian National University and I'm also the Associate Director of Research for an ANU Grand Challenge on Zero Carbon Energy for the Asia Pacific. Now you have studied trade liberalisation and its effect on workplace and environmental standards. 
Uh, trade liberalisation is a theme of Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine, uh, which is broadly about disaster capitalism, the way crisis is used often to push through reforms that wouldn't be. Uh, mm-hmm. Is this something that has come up in your study? So what we were looking at specifically was actually food safety standards. So we were using um, WTO data where countries have to notify if they're making a change to food safety standards called sanitary and phytosanitary standards that might have an impact on trade. And the question we were looking at was whether when tariffs are reduced or when imports increase and an industry is under more pressure, whether governments tend to manipulate these standards in their favour to try and provide some compensation for the stress that they're experiencing due to the trade liberalisation. So we're not looking so much at crises or, or, or major moments in history, but rather at the impacts of these little changes of, you know, industries constantly pushing and pushing for uh, regulations and standards to be moved in their favour and showing that they're more likely to have success in those endeavours when, um, when they're hurting for some reason. So, for instance, if there was a massive economic crisis caused by a global pandemic... For example, yes. Yeah. So, so that's what I've been saying recently in the media is that we would expect to see exactly this sort of phenomena because industries are hurting, particularly some of the major fossil fuel industries. So um, if, if the theory follows um, the same as we observed empirically, you will see them being more successful in their um, efforts to, to get things like environmental regulations moved in their favour. And certainly, if you look at the US right now, I mean, Trump's had a long-term agenda of favouring the fossil fuel industry and, and winding back environmental regulation. But that's certainly moving um, a pace at the moment with the Keystone um, pipeline approvals and with various states in the US banning, uh, you know, making it illegal to um, do environmental protests, for example, happening right at the moment in the middle of this crisis. Mm, also, the scrapping of uh, electric car targets and things like this. That uh, it's really it's things that are policies of kind of these neoconservative governments anyway. But there's a chance for them to be pushed through, which is in Australia where we've seen Suzanne Lee talk about the need to cut green tape in response to the crisis. Well, that's always liberal policy to try to get rid of environmental standards, isn't it? But this is a, an opportunity to do it. Absolutely, and this is a very dangerous moment. And interestingly, so the Environmental Biodiversity and Protection Act was up for its 10-year review, and there's a, a review being conducted at the moment. And, and this is the, you know, the green tape um, sort of legislation federally Yet the government are intent on pushing their changes to the legislation ahead of when that review will come out. So normally it would be more like the end of the year when perhaps the crisis has passed a bit before the, you know, the review comes out and the government should make its changes in response to that review. So I think it is very, um, very much fitting uh, this same story that they're, they're jumping on the moment now to try and push through the changes and, yeah, reduce their green tape. Hmm. So, in your study of um, of how this process happens, I mean, how does 
industry affect government policy? What are the mechanisms that allow this? That's an excellent question, and it's a, a, a whole field of academic research. Um, but unfortunately, we weren't looking at how it happened in our story. We were just able to show, because we had this great data, that it does happen at these times. So um, I'll, I'll have to refer you to political scientists um, to tell you how it happens based on their research. But from my knowledge, there's a whole range, and we know about um, many of these things. So there is the revolving door where people go from government positions straight into industry positions. There are very, very smart, very highly paid people who spend, you know, their entire working day uh, lobbying government. That's what they're paid to do. Um, and so, so there's this, just this whole range of different ways that industry works. Um, but they, you know, they actually, they do work. And I think that's the important message for the community is you can't expect to sit home watching Netflix during the crisis um, and have the world turn out at the end of the crisis like you want it to. Because meanwhile, there are other people who haven't stopped working to push for the world that they want that helps them profit. right or what was wrong never taught me to play guitar never taught me to write songs one thing that she taught me all remember for all time not that you should never walk across a picket line i would never walk across a picket line solidarity forever don't mean just sometimes long live the union cross my heart and hope to die if i should ever walk across a picket line Took me to the factory where the workers were on strike Company had called and scabbed to break the union's might Mom went to the front and she addressed those greedy swine Said I dare any of you men to walk across this picket line Oh, I would never walk across a picket line Solidarity forever don't mean just sometimes Long live the union, cross my heart and hope to die Why should ever walk? had something to say no woman will stand between me and one day's pay i don't care about the others i am taking what is mine that he tried to walk across our union's picket line i would never walk across a picket line solidarity forever don't mean just sometimes long live the union cross my heart and hope to die if i should ever walk across a picket line a dirty scab and gave him two pieces of her mind. She picked up and she threw every rock that she could find. And when he called the cops on her, she kicked his behind and said, that's what you get when you walk across a union's picket line. Oh, I would never walk across a picket line. Solidarity forever don't mean just sometimes. Long live the union cross my heart and hope to die. If I should ever walk across a picket line.
my mother used to say We're fighting for a better world, not just for better pay And if we stick together, then we'll win this fight in time As long as we don't walk across each other's picket lines Everybody, I would never walk across a picket line Oh yes, that is Evan Greer there with on backing vocals and Feeney, a great protest folk singer as well. That is the Picket Line song. It is, of course, the 1st of May, International Workers' Day, and so we'll play some good union songs to uh, rouse the rabble, you know, <laughs> in this time of sadly no, um, there'll be no May Day march on Monday. Um, before that was Emma Aisbet. Uh, talking about some of the the ways that uh, corporations use and governments use times of downturn or crisis to push through reforms that help the corporate project in general. We'll go back to talking with Emma. And in your research, you mentioned that times of uh, economic crisis or, or decline were times when the those environmental and safety standards were most at threat. How does this process happen when there is crisis? What's the reason that that's the point where things are most likely to change? Well, I think there's a number of factors going on here as well. Sorry to, sorry to be so academic, but I do think the sort of argument that Naomi Klein makes about people being distracted and feeling disconnected um, is definitely part of the picture. But the sort of thing that's going on um, in our research, it's, it's not about crisis times, it's about losses. So there's a thing in psychology and psychology and economics called loss aversion. And that means that, that people really feel losses relative to the status quo very strongly. And so some academics make the argument that uh, the reason you see industry more likely to get its way when it's when it's hurting or suffering is that they are suffering loss aversion, the actual people working in that industry, and therefore the amount of money or effort that they're willing to put in um, to achieve their goals goes up as a response to trying to compensate for this loss. There's also the broader phenomenon, if you think about when it is that you're more likely to get the left-wing government um, in power. It's during a recession because there's this tendency of um, people to think when I'm suffering, when, you know, the universe has been unkind to me and it's an unlucky time, that's when I turn to the government to try and help me out. And and I think that phenomena also you see from industry as well. Mm. So our fear of losing what we have now is a stronger feeling than our hope of creating something better than what we have now. Unfortunately, that that does seem to be uh, a fairly broadly uh, proven empirical phenomena from humans. Mm. So, I mean, that would certainly affect then when we think about the kind of environmental discourse in Australia about say, renewable energy versus uh, carbon-intensive industries, that um, one of these is going to come out stronger out of a talk about how to recover from this economic crisis. 
That's right. So in terms of um, actual sort of the most efficient time to make a transition like the transition to clean energy, it is actually during a time of crisis when the economy is relatively shut down. That is the most efficient time. And so there's an amazing opportunity to move to a clean energy transition. It's one that we really need to try and catch at this moment in the same way the Europeans are really pushing their new Green Deal. But it is absolutely the fact that... um, on the one hand, you have this growth potential for this new clean economy and these clean industries, um, and that is something that somehow pulls less at the heartstrings than um, the concern that we have as humans for, for others who are losing at a time and sort of kicking the losers in the teeth when they're already down is something we don't feel all that comfortable to do, even if those losers happen to be responsible for uh, wiping out biodiversity on this continent and, and threatening our entire um, sort of long-term survival. So in view of the research that you've done, I mean, how do you see this playing out over the next months or years as the as Australia and the world tries to recover from the the economic impacts of the COVID-19? Well, importantly, I think it could go different ways in different countries. So what our research actually showed is it's not always a downward push on environmental standards that industry wants. If a certain industry in a certain country is actually relatively good at complying to stronger environmental or safety standards, they will actually tend to push for an upward movement in those standards because they can then out-compete those who are only able to you know, meet certain low standards. And that's exactly what we saw in our study. And I think it's part of what you're seeing in Europe at the moment. So the European firms are already leaders in technology development and particularly in clean tech. So they're on the side with their population pushing the government because it's to their actual competitive advantage to push for higher standards. So you see Europe as part of the new Green Deal, not only talking about putting a whole lot of public money into research and investment in clean technologies, but also explicitly saying that they want to push standards up globally and talking about trade remedies that will help their industries, their cleaner industries, be protected from dirty industries outside. The question for Australia is we could go either way. So we have these massive incumbent um, coal industry and gas industry. They're obviously going to be lobbying very hard. But we actually have the potential uh, to be one of the, you know, world's largest exporters of renewable energy. We have a whole lot of sunshine. We have really good wind and we have a lot of land. So so the thing for Australia is if, if enough people push we could actually get, you know, this nascent renewables industry aligning um, with the climate movement in the same way that we've seen industry align with the climate movement in Europe. Which I guess brings me to my final question. What do we need to do in, in this time of crisis of economic recovery to make sure that this recovery doesn't come at the cost of our environment? An excellent question. Uh, I think, yeah, I've I've been hinting at it throughout the interview. So what we need to do is stop clicking 
on COVID-related stories in the news and start reading some other bits of news. Start looking at all the environmental regulatory changes that are starting to be talked about, and particularly the Environment um, Biodiversity and Protection Act going on in Australia at the moment. Start paying attention. Start writing letters. Start signing petitions. Don't just disappear down a hole of, of COVID-19 um, tweets and, and, and Netflix viewing. Thanks, Emma. Thank you very much for your time and and thanks for your efforts as well. And I stumbled to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five What a way to make a living Barely getting by It's all taking and no giving They just use your mind Just a step on the boss man's ladder But you got dreams he'll never take away On the same boat with a lot of your friends Waiting for the day your ship will come in And the tide's gonna turn and it's all gonna roll your way Working nine to five International Workers Day classic there from Dolly Parton. That is nine to five. Um, you, it's a rich man's game, no matter what you call it, and you spend your days putting money in his wallet. Uh, one of the, <laughs> there's never been a truer word spoken about nine to five life. Um, we are playing a bunch of union songs because it is, of course, May Day today. Um, and worth remembering all the the struggles of people pitching in together to make the world better, not just workplace relations better, although certainly done that, but all kinds of things, environmental gains as well, social gains. Um, and that's what we need to continue to do. Before Dolly there was speaking with Emma Aisbet about 
the power of the corporate lobby and the way that economic downturns are used to suppress some of those hard-won gains of environmental regulations and safety regulations and things like that. And so uh, now more than ever in a time of crisis and a time where there's going to be a lot of talk, there's been a lot of talk about everybody pitching in together for the you know, social distancing uh, way of flattening the curve and um, trying to stop the pandemic spreading. Well, it's not hard to imagine that in a time of economic recovery, it's going to be a call for everybody to pitch in and no um, loud voices to speak out against any government uh, attempts to uh, boost industry by cutting down workers' rights or environmental protections or um, social concerns or people's concerns about privacy, things like that. That's what we're talking about, the potential for this crisis to be used um, by people who have nefarious intentions <laughs> to push their own agendas. Um, and so I was speaking with Emma Aisbet about that. She's studied some of that, the way that safety regulations are affected by um, corporate lobbying and by economic downturns. I also spoke with Rachel Wormsley. She is a lawyer from the Environmental Defenders Office who do a lot of good work keeping governments in check, using the courts to try to protect our environment. And they have set up a page on their website, which is edo.org.au. They've uh, done a post a couple of days ago specifically about keeping a vigilant eye on decision-making during the COVID-19 pandemic because they're very concerned that while our democracy doesn't have all its normal um, aspects, there's no parliament currently debating things, and the media certainly is somewhat distracted and the public and a lot of talk of crisis and a pitching in a, um, that can be used to push through things that harm our environment. And so Environmental Defenders Office is keeping an eye on that and encouraging us all to... So I spoke to Rachel Wormsley about this. Could you start by introducing yourself? I'm Rachel Wormsley. I'm the Law Reform Director at the Environmental Defenders Office. Now, the Environmental Defenders Office uh, do a good job and a, a never-ending job of trying to, um, in the courts, sort of protect our environment, resist uh, projects that shouldn't go ahead and um, keep environmental standards up. Now, this is a, a job that always is hard, but it may be harder in the coming times when people are talking about a need to recover from the COVID uh, economic crisis. And one of the casualties of that may be our environment um, if it's deemed to be not as important as economic recovery. Is this something that the Environmental Defenders Office is worried about? Yes. It would be fair to say that even though we're all working remotely at the moment, we are actually busier than ever. The, the rate of changes and initiatives that's being brought forward by governments across the country at the moment uh, to deal with the COVID situation uh, are keeping us extremely busy. Now, all these changes, they include the public health orders and the things we hear about in the media, but they also include other changes to how projects are done, how community participation is done, and some really, really fundamentally important uh, processes and rights are being amended across the country. 
What are some of the examples of that? Uh, for example, um, in New South Wales, there's a hearing coming up about a really controversial gas project near Narrabri, and that project got 20,000 submissions from people who are concerned about it. Now, normally there would be a public hearing where people would get to present evidence, uh, and of course, because of the public gathering rules, public hearings can't be held in person. So... They're going to be held electronically uh, and online. And that's actually a, a real issue for procedural fairness for some people out in the bush. If your internet isn't, isn't reliable or you don't have mobile phone coverage, then can you truly participate in a public hearing that might affect you know, your local environment and you, you want to be a part of? So it's examples like that that we're looking really closely at. Mm. There has been a little bit of talk over the last few weeks, some approvals that went through, for instance, the Victorian government lifting its moratorium on onshore gas or the approval of uh, the expansion to Peabody's Metropolitan Coal Mine at Helensburg in New South Wales, which is under the, the Warrenora drinking catchment for southern Sydney. Are these things... Do you think that were pushed through while public gaze was on the COVID virus or were they things that were going to go through anyway? A lot of these projects were in the pipeline anyway uh, and were, were under assessment. So it's very difficult to say. I mean, it differs for each particular project Um when, when it's announced that things are approved or things are moved along. But certainly what we're seeing uh, at the state and national level is a real push to speed up assessment of projects uh, and approval of projects uh, in terms of stimulating the economy and providing jobs as part of recovery. So there is a definite theme about uh, trying to speed up approvals across the country. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that we have seen is the Federal Environment Minister, Suzanne Lee, talk about the need to cut green tape as part of an economic recovery. Um, This is not new for the Liberal Party to talk about green tape as a problem. It seems to be quite opportunistic uh, in this time of crisis to talk about this as a response. Yes, so our federal environmental laws are under review at the moment. We've got the 10-year review of our Environment Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act. That review kicked off last October before the COVID issues really, really got momentum. So that review is really, really important. And there has been discussion in the media about fast-tracking developments and making amendments before that review is actually finalised as part of economic stimulus. Now, that's a a real concern because what we have is an opportunity um, to actually make stronger laws that are going to help build healthy, resilient communities and landscapes. What we don't need is fast-track decisions that actually under mine proper reforms like that. Do you think that there is a, a kind of deliberate opportunism going on during this time of, of distraction and of crisis, as Naomi Klein would say, disaster capitalism? Is this an intentional process to try to push through reforms that maybe otherwise wouldn't get through? Uh, yes, there, there's one example like I can give you. So there's been a push for a long time uh, on 
in relation to cutting perceived green tape and trying to make things more efficient to remove stand, standing for objectors to bring court proceedings. So we're talking about when, uh, you know, EDO clients like environment groups or individuals, they bring a case in the public interest to try and protect, um, you know, Australia's environment, be it the reef, be it the threatened species and so forth. The law currently allows for third parties to bring these cases. Now, for a long time, there has been a push from some people to remove those rights of standing because it says, you know, they hold up mining projects or that there's actually no evidence um, that these cases are actually delaying, unduly delaying or unreasonably limiting economic development. So this is an example because this issue has come up before. The Senate... Uh, a Senate committee did an inquiry into this issue several years ago, found no evidence. But under the guise of COVID now, of course, this agenda has come up again. And there are groups saying, oh, we need to cut standing because we can't have court cases. But actually, as I said before, it's times like this when there is a pandemic, there is a crisis. We need to preserve the really important rights. We need to preserve rights that ensure transparency and accountability of government. When the government Governments are making so many different changes for, for good reasons. We also need to make sure that there's transparency and accountability to make sure the changes are legitimate and in the public interest. Mm. So for the Environment Defender's Office, um, what kind of processes are you trying to put in place to try to protect some of those rights? So the Environmental Defenders Office plays a watchdog role. So we're keeping close track of what all the changes are across Australia to different laws and, and different community processes um, and different things. So on the one hand, we do we do take that watchdog role. We also recommend law reform. Uh, we've just done a large submission to the EPBC Act review where we're saying look, our laws are failing. Here is our vision for actually making effective laws that will help people and, and the environment. And then occasionally we do bring cases against government where there has been an alleged breach of the law or an unlawful action. So we, we do a lot of these things and we also do community education and outreach. So we help people learn about the law and how they can use the law to protect the environment. So we're certainly ramping up all these things at the moment. And for the everyday person who is concerned about our environment and concerned about the way it may be uh, a casualty in the, the talk of economic recovery, what, uh, what can people do to try to make sure that we're protecting it? There's a lot of information on our website about what's happening, but we do encourage people, if they are concerned, to get in touch, to, to find out what's happening in their local area and find out what it means because it's really important at the moment that processes are transparent and accountable. And in terms of the COVID crisis, it, crisis, it has overshadowed the fact that we started this year with a massive catastrophic bushfire season in terms of the environment we haven't fully really understood the long-term impacts of the bushfires yet so 
And when we're talking about recovery, we should be talking about recovery from bushfires. Uh, we should be using this opportunity for a reset of our laws and thinking about climate change, thinking about how we actually plan for resilience and transition, how we recover our species and all those things like that. So it's really important that communities who care about their environments do get involved in that debate, not lose sight these really, really important issues during the COVID pandemic. Thanks very much, Rachel. Is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? Uh, no, I think a lot of people have uh, been engaged in the EPVC Act review and written in submissions. It'll be important to keep being involved in that process. There's an interim report due out in June uh, where Graham Samuels is going to set out what his draft recommendations are for the future of environmental law. And it'll be really important for community uh, to be involved in, in shaping that law to make sure that it's in the public interest for everyone. And can you still put in submissions towards that? They are accepting late submissions on the original issues paper uh, and there will be a draft report in June where there, there will be a chance to provide comments on that, I understand. Okay. Thanks very much, Rachel. Thanks. Have a lovely day. Short and sweet there by the criminals. That is Union, yes. Uh, we have been playing Union songs for uh, May Day. And we did get a request in uh, for Marilyn Manson. I assume it's a cover of the John Lennon song, Working Class Heroes. Sadly, we don't have it. and so. Um, but I will go out with one more Union song before we end the paradigm shift. Before that little burst of proletarian punk rock we had we were speaking with rachel wormsley from the environmental defenders office about some of their concerns about uh the way that the covid pandemic can be used to push through reforms that will hurt our environment and as I mentioned before, interview, they do have a page up on their website, which is edo.org.au, that is specifically about uh, keeping an eye on this issue. Um, and the page says, keeping a vigilant eye on decision-making during the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's got examples in different states uh, of what things are, are coming up and what the public can do. And so if you are concerned, um, I recommend getting onto that and checking it out. Of course, so many of us um, sitting around a lot at the moment feeling a bit lost and it, we do really need at this time more so than ever, we need to be trying to work out how we can be uh, standing up for the things that we believe in, how we can be shaping a society that is in flux, shaping in a way that's more sustainable for human life, for all species on earth, um, and for the good life, you know, beyond just surviving, which is 
important in a time of pandemic. We need to work out surviving. But when it comes out of this, we don't want a life that's based on surviving. And I guess that's part of the, the union movement as well. In Australia, traditionally, it was about a balance of work, rest and play and a, a broader vision of what the good life meant. And so we, we're in a time of change and I do encourage everybody to get active in trying to create a world going forward that is the kind of world that we want to live in and that um, can encourage all of us to, to live better lives and more sustainable lives and keeping in mind the other crisis, of course, which is the looming climate change. Um, that is about the end of today's show on the shock doctrine, on the use of crisis by... Uh, government and industry to push through reforms that maybe they wouldn't otherwise. I'm hoping that next week I'll talk a bit more about some other elements of this beyond the environment, the way that it might affect uh, our workers' rights, the way that it might affect our privacy rights um, and maybe the way that it will affect sort of international relations and the further militarisation of our society. And so tune in again for that. Keep supporting 4ZZZ. Um, of course, there's all kinds of great shows um, going on and independent media. It's so important when it comes to uh, keeping power in check and making the kind of world that we want to live in. So tune in again next week. Keep supporting. Um, I'm going to go out with a song. We've been playing Union songs. I'm going to go out with one from The Ghost Set. They have released a new album this week. If you want to hear my review of the new Ghost Set album, you can tune into the new releases show from 3 p.m. today. Um, I'm a bit harsh on the new Ghost Set album, though, so I thought I wanted to play one of their older songs to say I, I still do like this band. <laughs> um, so this is the Ghost Set with Union Man. Um, happy May Day, everybody, um, and see you next week. Mm-hmm.